Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. Atlanta deserves a world-class education system where every student can get a great education. But for too many, that's not happening. Casey Benning is running for APS school board because she knows we can do better. We have to close the achievement gap and provide children with an education that prepares them for life. Casey Benning will demand accountability, increase transparency, prioritize classroom safety, and provide greater educational opportunity for our kids. And Casey's ready to lead now. She spent her entire professional career advocating for children. Casey is a nonprofit executive who co-founded Hey, helping empower you, an organization that advocates for underserved kids. Casey Benning is the leader we need to change APS for the better and get us the results we deserve. On Election Day, vote Casey Benning for Atlanta Board of Education. Paid for by Georgia Can IEC and not authorized by any candidate. When your celebration of life is prepaid in advance, it becomes a gift from you to your family later because no one should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Paying in advance protects your loved ones and gives you the peace of mind you deserve. Let us help you plan every detail with professionalism and compassion. We're your local Dignity Memorial provider. Find us at DignityMemorial.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Nerd to the Third Power, your one-stop shop for all things nerdy and awesome. I'm Master Ceremonies, Dr. Gonzo. With me, as always, this epic quest of awesomeness is our resident anime goddess, the cat. Cat, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I do want to apologize in advance if you hear some meowing in the background, because my cat is really insistent on coming into my recording space, and uh, I don't want to let him in. One, he one... loves you. I was looking out my window and then going to the other window and then looking out that window and then coming back to my window to look out that window and then going to the other window, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, to, to, to a house pet, that's the that's their equivalent of channel surfing. You know you, what? You, you You're need, very you, right. You're so you, right. You need so 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 the solution is you need to get more channels. You need to get a house with more with more windows, so then then he has more channels. <laughs> you know bullshit has his own TV. Like <laughs> I literally give him all the channels he could ever want. He's just spoiled, and right now he's going uh, uh, outside my door, and it's very Aww. pathetic. And I want to let him in so badly. <laughs> oh no, now uh, he's scratching. Oh no, I just hear the little scratch, 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 scratch. He knows you're talking about him. I know. He's like, bitch, what'd you say? <laughs> Excuse me? Are you talking about me? All right, Mike, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good, if not remarkably busy. I've been 
juggling a bunch of government responsibility things, dealing with some interesting drama on Twitter, and uh, still doing school and everything. And uh, it's been busy, folks, to say the very least. I've barely slept in what feels like a month. All right. Well, okay. Well, uh, hopefully tonight will be a nice, uh, a nice bit of levity, levity for you. Uh, this is our Halloween spooktacular, and as is our tradition for our Halloween show, it is our tradition to discuss Halloween things. And uh, we kind of hit upon a topic that we're kind of surprised that we never actually covered before, and that's the actual Halloween movies. So uh, this year for our Halloween spooktacular, we're doing an old versus new. We're talking about the original uh, John Carpenter's Halloween and uh, the 2018 sequel. Uh, slash reboot, so that'll be lots of fun. But of course, there is procedure to follow, so we are going to begin, as always, with Ask a Geek, and we got a bunch of questions here that are that we're looking forward to. So the first question here is for me, and it is from Eric, and he asks, what are my thoughts on the Nintendo Switch Online expansion pack? And uh, I have two minds. On the one hand, I think it's really awesome that they're they're finally bringing in Nintendo 64 games. The Sega, the Sega Genesis games were a surprise. I didn't expect that to happen. Um, but on the other hand, like, I mean, I, I'm going to get it just because I, the idea of playing Ocarina of Time on the go is just, you know, it, you know, something I love. And I didn't, as as much as I love the the 3DS remake, I I think the Nintendo 64 version is my is my favorite version. So to be able to take that on the go is really cool. But on the other hand, like right now for the for the price that they're asking, especially for a family plan, which is like seventy bucks. It's just, it, it's 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 really hard for even though I'm I'm I, I I already bought it. It's hard for me to really justify that price. Um, I guess it, I guess I really need to see what Nintendo is planning to do with it long term because in addition to, of course, the extra online games, they're also releasing the Animal Crossing DLC as a as a freebie that you get with the Nintendo Switch Online membership. Now, if this is a sign of things to come, that Nintendo is going to be putting out their DLCs for free as part of an NSO expansion pack membership, then I'll have an easier time justifying that price because, you know, you can either, you know, pay X amount of dollars a month for your, for something that will get you all, any DLC that you, that is coming out that you may want for a game that you have um, through the NSO membership, or you can decide if, you know, okay, if, if, if there's only a couple of games that you might want the, the add-ons for, you can just buy them individually and forego the Switch Online membership. So it's it's really kind of early days right now. I, I I can't really make a... Like, right now, in this moment, gun to my head, it's very hard for me to justify the, the price that they're asking. Um, it's funny you mention this, though, because literally this morning, I got this... Uh, I got the expansion pass, and I did a little bit of kind of reading into it. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned Ocarina of Time. That's the one game that runs like shit on this service. Like, you get missing frame rates, massive, like, kind of frame drops, and even button delays if you're playing with a non-wired controller. There's an article on Kotaku, I think, that, like, talks about this. And I was like... Wow, glad I'm not paying for this because a friend of mine actually got me uh, signed up for it. But I'm kind of with you on this. I hope they do something more long term and maybe get better emulation and better kind of stuff in the background to make things work better. Because right now, that's a big pill to swallow. But if they do what they're doing with Animal Crossing with other titles, like say, oh, I don't know, Mario Party and hey, here's a new course every couple of months. That'd be fine. 
Yeah, so like I said, it's, it's, it's early days right now. Now, as for the, the emulation issue, um, I haven't seen the Kotaku article because I don't read Kotaku because fuck Kotaku, but that's a discussion for a whole other table. Um, but, I mean, you know, that, that doesn't surprise me because there were, there were some issues with the NES and Super Nintendo games when they first came out. So, you know, being in IT, it's easy, it's easy for me to, 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 to see, to kind of forgive for day one issues because, like, you know... It, Putting doing anything with information technology is all, is almost like coming up with a with a with a strategy plan for a battle. No no plan of attack ever survives contact with the enemy, and no initial setup ever survives you know day one stress testing out in the market. So I'm I'm pretty confident that before the, the month is out, we're we're going to see the the N64 online service get an update that'll fix a lot of those issues. Because I mean, you could say many things about Nintendo, but they're not a company to just let something sit there and just not work. Unlike, say, you know, Microsoft, but you know, that's a again discussion for a different table. Um, I do hope, however, that we see more uh, a more steady stream of of support for the online game offerings. Um, you know, like we, when was the last time we got a, a significant addition to the NES or the Super Nintendo libraries? You know, there's this is really the the, the whole online gaming aspect of Nintendo Switch Online, I felt, has been severely underutilized, especially when you consider the the caliber of the libraries for the consoles that are being offered. You know, there are a ton of games that are, that that should be... Even, even discounting third-party licensing, there are a ton of first-party Nintendo games that should be, you know, ready and available on these services that I'm just baffled are missing. So, but, you know... I could go on all day about that. But anyway, next question here. Let's see. Um, uh, okay, here's uh, here's one for you, Kat. And uh, this one actually just came in today. And uh, this one comes from Mary. And she asks, have you seen the Dune movie yet? <laughs> yes. Of course I did. I saw and what did, you, what did you think of it? Um, so first off, I watched it on HBO Max in a, uh, a nice home theater setup rather than going to the uh, going to the movies so i cannot guarantee that i got the full experience um but uh i certainly was able to pause to pee because that was in a very it was a very long movie y'all um i enjoyed it for the most part uh it was i i thought there was a lot of stuff in it that the way that it was edited was a little confusing and if i didn't know the books and the other film and the miniseries and stuff i would probably find a lot confusing they have a lot of like whole acid trips on spice and sees visions and then the visions just become more and more constant and then it's like oh you're having visions of a scene right before the scene happens okay this is actually kind of annoying and it's it has a lot to do with just the way the book was written. There's a lot of internal monologuing in the book. It's like ninety percent internal monologue in the book. So um, this is kind of their way of explaining Paul's visions without Paul having to reflect on everything internally. Um, so I think the visions make everything really confusing. But, I mean, most people, I, th- I think, have been able to follow it. It's just, like, it's a little jarring jumping from thing to thing with, like, literally no preemption. I guess that's a word. 
Um, uh, otherwise, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the cast was pretty good. There's a... It, the, my hang-up is that it is part one. It is part one, and like as of the day we're recording this, part two just got greenlit. So they kind of made a film with no guarantee that they were going to make the, the part two. Which is a little daring, I think. But what, is, what, what, is, what does that say about about Hollywood that that is actually surprising? Like you think something as big as Dune, they'd have like greenlit like four movies already. Dude, there was no way so they cursed. weren't going to greenlight it though. No, but Dune is so cursed. Yes. I mean, now, the original Dune film was a huge, huge flop, and it's a cult classic. And now, especially among like people I know. Um, but, like, it is not a good film, <laughs> just being honest here. I love it. Now, that doesn't make it good. But Dune is very, very cursed. People have tried to make it, and studios don't want to give it the time of day. Um, the the mini series were not particularly well received because they were made in an era in between technology, so a lot of the CG is very bad. It's a, It's really just such a difficult thing to adapt. So I can't imagine why they would only do, like, why they would only guarantee one, except they thought for sure that it was going to flop. But they spent so much money to make it look good. Now, a question that I have. Um, so we talked in our in our Lord of the Rings episode about how the Peter Jackson films, they had stuff that if you were a fan of the books, you'd be like, oh, yay, squee, fan service. But they were still really accessible to people who hadn't read the books. Does Dune kind of tread that same line, or is it more something that you'd really only get enjoyment out of if you've already read the books and know what's going to happen? I, I don't know that there are a lot of things that I picked up on that were um, Easter eggs or anything like that. I thought the the movie actually did a very good job of balancing out having a lot of exposition to explain things because it is a very politically dense film um so there's a lot going on that needs a lot of groundwork laid for it and if you don't know anything going in then you have to have a lot of exposition to figure out what the fuck um but it didn't explain every single little detail and you're sort of expected to pick up on some things so I thought there was actually a pretty good balance in there. Maybe a little too much exposition, like it could have been subtler, but in the end it really did fulfill the, that that need to uh, yeah, explain what the fuck is going on. But again, not a whole lot in the way of like anything super, super special that's just for the nerds out there. Um, everything was just sort of Honestly, I'll, the the one detractor I would give, other than the uh, hallucinating all of these different scenes back and forth, is that a lot of stuff happened in it. But you know, going like off the pacing of it, that there has to be a second film because it just does not feel complete. It has like sort of a weird pacing the further you go in. So it's like you know that something else needs to happen, but you've already been there for two and a half hours, and you're like, okay, when does this end? Like, what's the end scene here? And every time you're like, this is it, and then it's not. This is it, and then it's not. And it's sort of like The Hobbit in that regard. Or uh, the the Return of the King, rather. One of the um, things I did notice, Kat, and especially for you, it's an interesting time to be a Dune fan, because there's a lot of peripheral kind of media that's around Dune right now. I know there's a company over in England named... Modifius, sorry, I kind of 
I stuttered there for a second. Uh, they're the same company that does Fallout. They do Star Trek Adventures. They have a Dune RPG that's been pretty well received. There's a game company out of New Zealand called Gale Force 9, and they released two Dune board games this year, or at least one. I've got one of them, which, by the way, Kat, give me your address because it's coming your way. Um, and and there's also a bunch of toys done by McFarlane, a friend of mine online named Justin was showing off his Dune collection figure the other day. And to see action figures, board games, role-playing games, do not be surprised if they do like another round of Dune computer games or console games in the next couple of years, if the franchise stays as successful as it is right now. Um, give, me, give me give me a battle for Arrakis too. That game was awesome on the Sega Genesis. Yeah, like there's going to be a lot of really cool kind of tie-in media. And one of the things I do for fun is I watch prop auctions because I'm a big Hollywood kind of prop guy. And there was a bunch of stuff from the original Dune movie that just came up for sale. I know there was a knife somebody used that ev- evidently was pretty important. And it went for a pretty reasonable price. There was a bunch of costumes. There was modeling, original sketches. I'm. It's. I've never seen the original. I'm hoping to get out to see Dune because we don't have HBO Max in Canada because digital rights suck. But uh, yeah, I mean, hearing you be so enthusiastic about it, but also saying if you don't read this, you might be a little lost. I'm more interested to see it now than I ever have been. So uh, it looks exciting. It's. It's definitely worth a watch. It is a gorgeous film. There's actually quite a lot of action in it considering that the book is quite let's be real here though the book is a bit of a slog um but they they know that this is like you you have to treat an audience with a lot of uh with a lot of cool action scenes in order to keep people interested it's really interesting for me as a fan of the old film to watch this this new film and see how much it is look at the differences but also see how much more it is accurate to the books and uh, it, it actually kind of um, a lot of the dialogue is almost word for word because the dialogue, some of the dialogue was pulled directly from the books. So I think it's really it's really fun. Watch. Um, there's a lot of it's just so visually it's a visual feast, as one would say. There's a lot of different stuff going on. It is all very rich looking, like just lots of neat stuff happening. Um yeah, really, really cool. Definitely worth a watch, whether or not you're familiar with Dune. Um, and if you ever get confused about what's going on, just replace the word spice with oil, and then just pick a bunch of different countries to assign to all the different planets, and you have, uh, you know, just call Arrakis the Middle East, and it all makes a lot more sense. Okay. Alrighty, let's see here now. Uh, okay, we got another another couple questions here. Let's see here. Um, okay, uh, here is one uh, for me, and this one comes from Luke, and uh, he asked, "What is something? What is something? What? what yeah, excuse me, what is a pet peeve that I have with gaming news?" And th- this is a real big. This is a real big one for me. Um, I really hate fucking rumor mongering, like. The, 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 I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you a perfect example. So there's there's a lot of gaming YouTubers out there who they will 
try to they basically try and some like conspiracy theories about like why this company is going to be doing something so like a big one was of course you know uh the nintendo switch pro uh that we've been hearing about for so long you have uh, and you had all of these gaming youtubers who were talking about like you know okay well the switch is selling really well we're more than halfway into its into its life cycle and I was like, okay, yeah, this is all true. But then they they go on and say that like these things are evidence of why Nintendo is going to be putting out a Switch Pro model soon. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not evidence. You're uh, evidence. You're confusing correlation with causality. Like just because A is true does not automatically mean B is true. And then another one uh, when Metroid Dread uh, was announced and it was, you know, the news was coming out that it was topping the pre-order charts. They were saying that, oh, well, that's evidence that Nintendo is going to be releasing a, a Metroid collection on the Switch. It's like, no, that is not evidence. Where are you getting your sources? You're, you're, you're grasping at straws here. And I just, I, I really hate stuff like that because it's, it's, if I'm, if I'm being generous, it's, it's a bunch of people wanting to be, you know believing things that they want to believe at its worst it's just straight up clickbait and 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 toying around with people's people's wants and expectations and i just i really fucking hate that so like that is like my biggest pet peeve when it comes to any kind of not just gaming youtubers but like gaming news in general is like you know pulling all these disparate threads together and arranging them in a circle and saying, you know, the, and you know, connecting them all with the red with the the red string and saying, okay, this is, you know, all uh, all of this is true, so that means that this thing is also true as well, and it just it drives me nuts. I've got you know, one it, for you. Just because you kind of hit on something that is so hard to parse sometimes as a journalist because you you talk about what are your sources some of these guys are reliable but you are so right on the money it's scary they do it for they do it for kind of clickbait they do it for headlines they want the views they don't care whether the news is accurate because like for example you're a pretty big nintendo switch guy um do you remember how many people say they found the leaked characters for like um kind of smash or we'd see um a best buy listing as you mentioned for like metroid prime kind of trilogy or stuff like that people will look to ratings boards for games that haven't even been released yet let alone officially announced or you know whatever it, it's so hard to sort out what's real and what's not i know i've gotten caught a few times on this not because of like rumor mongering but because the sources they seem legit but then it turns out the site that reported originally didn't verify their sources so it's a game of telephone and it doesn't serve you as the public very well if we're we as the journalists are like oh by the way oh this wasn't true because i was sure like you mentioned about the nintendo switch pro I am genuinely surprised we didn't get some news about that, but we got the OLED model, which seems to me like, who cares? But I know there's reasons for it to exist. So you're right. It's incredibly frustrating when it comes to gaming news, and rumor mongering is the worst right now. I mean, we're, we, let me be clear. We are going to get a, a new model switch sometime in the next couple of years because we are getting close to that seven-year life cycle. And, you know... There, there, there have been reports going out, which I am inclined to believe because they're coming from the developers, saying they've gotten new Nintendo 
development kits. So that tells me that there is something coming down the pipe that we haven't heard about. So like stuff like that, I'm willing to find pretty credible. Um, stuff from like the ESRB ratings board, uh, I'm also willing to find credible as long as they're willing to show like something that could be reliably sourced from the ESRB. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you got, you know, the ones that really drive me nuts are like, you know, oh, uh, this game is selling really, really well. It has not sold really, really well before. Therefore, Nintendo is going to put out a collection of these games for the Nintendo Switch, you know, quote era demonstrandum. And it's like, no, that is not how that fucking works at all. You know, your, your, your basic first year logic and debate professor would throw you out of the fucking classroom if you said that. And it just drives me absolutely up the fucking wall. So, but yeah, that is that is my my biggest bugbear uh, when it comes to gaming news is just like you know the fucking rumor mongering. So, I've got but, one really quick to add because it's not something a lot of people talk about, and it was brought up in the Washington Post in the last like two weeks, where it talks about people who review games, and that's something that I do, for example, and they talk about how much time reviewers get with game versus actually reviewing the game and sometimes you'll get these games that are literally a hundred hours plus i'm looking at you persona 5 royal and sometimes a a, a good company a little bit of a peek behind the curtain here they'll give you time to properly review it so you can actually give an accurate um analysis and other times uh sometimes as a review you might get the game two or three days before release which is it's rough but sometimes you can do a game like say Far Cry 6, which will take you about 40 hours to beat, 20 if you speed run and don't listen to anything. It is possible to beat it. But you'll see, um, this is very kind of noticeable, is when you're reviewing games and you're watching the trophy list and you know you're in a very select, you're in a very select pool of people that are currently playing this, but that data is available across the entire um, PSN, you might say, let's say you roll credits on a game it might say this trophy is very rare x amount percentage of players have actually done it and sometimes you'll see a review out and a lot of us journalists talk and you know there's no way certain outlets or certain people could have beaten the game given the time that they got unless they had some really special access to it which most of us don't there's some disingenuity in the reviewing process i mean it's When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com. Now is the best time to start working at Amazon. They're offering sign-on bonuses up to $3,000 and hourly pay up to $22 per hour. You'll bring home a great weekly paycheck and many jobs come with benefits that start on your first day. That's higher pay, sign-on bonuses, benefits day one. And you'll be part of a safe and inclusive workplace ranked among the best in the world. Go to amazon.com apply to start your job search today. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. It's a pet peeve of mine because I hear people talk about things or they'll only show footage from the first couple hours of gameplay, but certain games change up how things, how the like 
end game is like about halfway through the game and certain reviews don't talk about that so it's a it's a little strange and that'd be my pet peeve if i had to mention something just being on the other side of this another another one that i have this is this is one that's thankfully not as common but uh when review outlets give a game to review to someone who you who does not like that genre of game like it always it always baffles me when you know i'm reading a review of a game let's say let's say it's a you know the new king of fighters and the first thing out of, and the first thing in the review is a paragraph of why the author hates fighting games i'm like then why the fuck are you reviewing this one you know I, you've already you've, you've already shown your hand let's you know that you're not going to like this but sometimes by giving that person something new that they don't like and it's supposed to be something really good that can really turn people's opinions and a really good example is something that happened to me very early on i hated open world games like skyrim but Bethesda gave it to me two weeks early back in 2011. And they're like, well, we don't know if this is going to be something you're going to dig, but here, give it a try. And look how much I love Skyrim now. That got okay. me into Fallout, too. But it, it's been my experience that situations like yours are the exception and not yes, the rule. Yes, it's rare. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. rare. And to me, that's 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 not worth the trade-off of having someone who comes in who, you know, uh, you know, let's say someone, you know, let's say you didn't like, you wound up, you know, hating, absolutely hating Skyrim. Well, how much of that is, personal is, bias is yeah, personal bias versus, versus legitimate grievances with the game. You mm-hmm. know, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of the same reason why you're not going to send me to review a slasher film. Ironic, giving our discussion topic for this episode, <laughs> because I don't like slasher films. So if I come, if I come out and say that this slasher film is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen, well, okay, how much of that is, is me coming at it righteously and how much of that is just me being a pill because mm-hmm. I don't like slasher films. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway... But uh, speaking of slasher films, that is, we're gonna just we're gonna roll right into our discussion topic. So thank you as always to everyone who sent in asking geek questions. You can send them to us as always through the email at drgonzo at nerd to the third power dot com. Love getting your questions, love reading them on the show. So get yours in, and you just might get yours read on the air. And so with that, we're gonna roll right into the meat and potatoes of our Halloween spooktacular, discussing uh, what else Halloween. This is actually a topic that I'm surprised we have actually never covered because it's so tailor made for a Halloween show. It's actually right there in the title. Halloween. So uh, this week we are going to be doing an old versus new. We're going to be comparing uh, the original John Carpenter Halloween film and uh, the 2018 reboot slash sequel. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be that. That should be a lot of fun. So, uh, Mike, this was your uh, idea for the show. So uh, why don't you get started? What uh, what what made you decide to want to cover these films for this year's Halloween show? Well, I kind of figured it was uh, kind of topical because. Halloween Kills, which is the sequel to the 2018 movie, just came out on Peacock. It's in theaters in Canada. Um, and I figured a g- good a time as any, uh, the 40th anniversary was back in two- is back in 2018. It's been in the public kind of consciousness. And, you know, Halloween has been one of those franchises that it has had a lot of ups and downs when it comes to the character, the lore, and having it done right has been something the Halloween franchise has kind of struggled with. We've had multiple directors, multiple interpretations of it. <coughs> Excuse me. And very few have gotten it right. Halloween 2018 does something a little bit different because it wipes the slate clean from the other things. Kind of does its own thing. And I think it's a really good example of a reboot 
soft reboot done right while still retaining some connections to the um, original and obviously the 1978 original by uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill what more can really be said about it other than it really made the slasher genre something iconic gave us a character and really showed off different techniques in film which are still very much used today and you'd see it done in knockoffs like Friday the 13th was does its own thing but you would get characters like Jason would often get compared to Michael Myers and stuff like that and it's a franchise that has a surprising amount of legs to it I, I'm very surprised it's still going today and the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is still involved as much as she is is super surprising and even Rob Zombie at one point so that's kind of why I picked it because I love talking about this franchise it's not my favorite franchise that's Friday the 13th but I know more about this franchise because I've seen more documentaries on it which is weird there's more docs on this than like anything else like considered in the horror kind of genre there's at least three or four up on YouTube that are over like two hours long and they're really well done so yeah uh, that's uh, all I got for right now. Okay. Um, all right. So we'll just go ahead and just start uh, getting into these movies, uh, you know, piece by piece. And uh, I will remind you, Mike, because you have a tendency to go on tangents. We are discussing the movies, not supplemental materials surrounding the movies. Because I know if I let you go, you will go all night. <laughs> okay. Now, although there isn't much supplemental stuff that really ties in, other than action figures there's been some novelizations honestly most of the halloween stuff has stayed on the screen which makes it remarkably easy to talk about like i said it's weird there isn't more tie-in merch or ips to this actually okay so uh let's start with the uh with the original halloween film um i should call up real quick the wikipedia page for halloween so i have a, a, a ready reference here Okay, so while you're kind of doing that, I guess uh, to kind of... I got it. Okay. All right. All right, so uh, let's start with the original 1978 Halloween film. And uh, this is one that I'd actually already seen before, um, before we we came to this topic. I watched it a few years ago for the first time as part of a film history class. um, Because the the, the Halloween is really, um, if you look at it, it's the first modern slasher film. You know, there have been kind of serial kill mo- killer movies before Halloween, but this is the first one to really take it in. You know, those those are kind of like film noir murder mystery films. This is really the first one to really take the serial killer film into the horror territory. And it's a real interesting uh, exercise to go back and watch and see, like, all the, 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 the tropes and plot devices that we come to associate with modern slasher films and how they originated with Halloween. Yeah, because you look at the uh, structure, I mean, it's obviously, it's about a boy named Michael Myers who just for one day snaps. And then his uh, doctor, Dr. Samuel Loomis, uh, puts him into an institution where he's kept there for decades. And he says in one of his opening passages in a bit of narration, he's like, he had the devil's eyes, black as anything I'd ever seen. The only way to stop him is to keep him locked up. And it's weird because you look back at the original and the movie's big star was Donald Pheasant, wonderful actor who since uh, passed away many, many years ago. 
but he stuck with the franchise for a, a number of years. But you look at the character of the doctor who's trying to help and save him, warn people. But you mentioned tropes too. This is where the babysitter thing really kind of caught on because Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is baby is babysitting. Tommy Doyle, you see then like people have sex, they die, you start to see the brutality in America start to ramp up with this because Dawn of the Dead had come out in like 77 and that was George Romero and was gory as fuck, but John Carpenter made a horror movie, sure there was gore, there was blood, but it was never super explicit, like you never saw a head explode but you saw the one guy nailed to the wall with the uh, kind of butcher's knife. And that was like, okay, you can be disturbing, but I don't need to see his guts all spilled out on the floor. And I thought that was really creative. Plus he did his own music, which is, I, I, I've always heard this trope or not this trope, this, this adage that they teach you the Halloween theme when you're learning piano because it's so simple but it sounds so iconic and it's really easy to learn and i always thought that was kind of neat if it's true i don't play piano so i couldn't tell you um one thing because you watched it for film history class did they ever talk about how the movie was lit um we were we discussed remember this is like some 15 years ago i took this class Okay. Um, we talked a bit about how it was lit. Um, we talked a bit about a bit about shot composition. Um, but one of the things that I remember really being focused on was uh, in sort of the 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 the, the subtleties of, of of the building of tension. So one of the things that my professor pointed out when we were uh, when we were when we had to watch this film before uh, he assigned it, he said, "I want you to keep a scorecard." of how many shots you see Michael Myers in and uh, come back in and tell me how many shots he was in and I guarantee you nobody will get it right. And so when everybody came, when, when, we, when we all came back, everybody had, you know, their scorecards and it was all just the shots. Uh, everybody had all the same, roughly the same total. It's basically all the shots where you actually see Michael Myers in full view. And it turns out there are actually a lot of shots and scenes in this movie where Michael Myers is present but he's kind of hidden, so it's almost like a game of Where's Waldo. So a really good one is um, is a scene where uh, Lori is in the house babysitting the little boy. Mm-hmm. And she gets up from the couch uh, to pick up the phone. And if you look in the window uh, behind the couch, you can see Michael Myers actually looking in and watching her. And it's something that, like, you wouldn't notice it until you—you you don't consciously notice it until it's pointed out to you. But it helps to add to just this level of creepiness to the film. And it's one of the things that really sort of impressed me about this film is, like you said, it, it's not explicit or gory. It's a very subtle uh, form of tension building. Everything—it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost like it's almost like innuendo in a way. You know, there's a lot that you don't that we're not explicitly shown, you know, we're not given a whole lot of up closes of Michael Myers. In fact, the majority of his time in the film, we're actually looking through his eyes. We don't actually get to see him and what he looks like until like, I want to say past the halfway point of the movie. Yeah. So you get a brief look at his, uh, at his, at his profile when he's escaping uh, the sanitarium, but you're right. It's not until almost the very end. You see his face, kind of and he's just a guy 
And yeah. that's and something that- I don't think people expected. They expected him to be some supernatural monster, but he's just a guy. Well, that's that's another thing that I really like about the original film is it's never explained why Mike Myers does what he does. It's never explained why he is a killer. You know, like Friday the Thirteenth. Okay, Jason was a uh, was was a, a deformed little boy who was bullied, and he's taking revenge on people who are minors bullies. All right, uh, you know, Hellraiser, Pinhead. He's a demon, and you know, demon's gonna demon. Uh, Freddy Krueger, he was a, a, a child molester who wound up getting killed in by vigilante justice or an accident, depending on which continuity you're in, and he's getting his revenge. Michael Myers, first movie, no one knows why he does what he does, and I think that's what makes him such a frightening antagonist, is, you know, Jason and Freddy and Pinhead, we kind of know the the method to their madness and what led and kind of what led them to be what they are. Michael Myers, we have no fucking clue. I mean, what causes a six year old boy to just snap and stab his sister? You know, Let's and say, that's yeah, he's just evil. Yeah, and it's just it's never it's never explained why he does what he does. And I think that is what contributes a lot to why Michael is such a terrifying presence in the film. And it's one of the things that I felt actually wound up being a detraction from the 2018 film where they bring back Laurie Strode and Michael Myers has this like it's personal vendetta against her because it takes away a bit of that mystique that he's that that you know in the first film you know you kind of he's just a killer it's just he does what he does and we don't understand why and Laurie just have to be in the wrong place at the wrong time well okay 2018 now it's personal he's out to to finish what he started and that kind of humanizes him and I feel like that kind of kind of takes away from his mystique in the 2018 film i was about to say yeah i mean in the first movie he's just he's just there he's going home wrong place wrong time i'm going to kill you because you're in my way in the 2018 film you're right he is revenge driven kind of it's never fully explained someone explained to me michael myers is like a shark you just get the fuck out of the way and hope he doesn't see you. Here, he's got a very deliberate plan and he just kills along the way. Like, literally, he's going back to his childhood home to follow this up in Halloween Kills and it's just, wrong place, wrong time, I'm gonna murder you. I did like what they did with Lori's character in in, in Halloween 2018, how she's, she's traumatized... They wipe out continuity with literally one line of uh, kind of dialogue, and the original where they where they it's like, well, isn't he like her, isn't she like his sister? It's like, oh no, that was something somebody made up. Yeah, yes. that was something I always thought was stupid as hell. Was the idea that Laurie was somehow uh, there, there, there were there were two big explanations given. One was that Laurie was somehow Michael Myers' other sister, and then the other was that he was uh, the instrument of this cult, and Laurie was supposed to be like a sacrifice that he was supposed to kill. Both but of which say, are yeah. stupid as hell. But say, yeah, like when you get into the, the continuity for Halloween's four through six, there's some interesting ideas, but they don't belong in a Halloween movie, in my opinion. Just have him be a guy who's really strong. It doesn't need to be supernatural. It doesn't need to be Jason. And Halloween has always treated its killer a little bit better than Jason, although... He still gets shot and manages to survive and move on. And like he gets, I mean, in Halloween 2018, he gets his hand partially destroyed 
And I actually have to go back and rewatch Halloween Kills at some point and see if they maintain the continuity because he should be missing two fingers off of one hand. But um, yeah, there's something about it that takes away from it. The fact that now he has a reason, but the 2018 movie, as much as I love modern horror movies and I love special effects, I love practical effects. I love horror and gore because, you know, I'm a Fangoria kid. It almost seemed unnecessary at times. Like I prefer a more atmospheric fear. And like you said, like have the movie see through his eyes or seeing through everybody's eyes, but his, I mean, I guess this is more Laurie's movie, but there's one scene I always thought was particularly unnecessary. The two reporters, sorry, the two podcasters who go to visit him in the sanitarium have his mask from the attorney general's office. So, okay, sure. And they go to this gas station and one of the reporters is going to the bathroom and the other guy is filling up the car with gas and he walks around and he sees the guy dead with all of his teeth missing. And then you see another guy whose coveralls are now gone. And he's like, oh dear, there's a problem. So he goes to find his friend in the bathroom and Michael Myers shakes the door where the woman's in the toilet and he drops all the teeth he's ripped out of the person's head for no particular reason. I mean, when you watch the original Halloween, it's stab, stab, strangle, punch, kill. It's never as anything as dramatic as Jason from the later movies where he gets super creative with what was around him. Michael Myers in the new movies seems unnecessarily brutal. And I wonder if that's influenced from the Rob Zombie movies, or maybe that's just the way modern horror is kind of going. I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's just because it, it, it is a newer, it's, 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 it's kind of funny. That we're doing this right after our Treehouse of horror, uh, after our Halloween show, we discussed Treehouse of horror. I think Bart Simpson said it best is like, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like the original Halloween, you know, it was pretty shocking when it came out, but it's pretty tame by today's standards, you know? So it's, you know, I think it's just the fact that we've had so many horror films come out that built on what the original Halloween built that now we go back to the original Halloween and we're just kind of, it's just kind of blase, so they kind of have to amp things up to keep, you know, an air of menace and, and shock surrounding Michael Myers. Uh, I do agree the teeth thing was uh, was really out there because Michael Myers is he's very utilitarian. Yeah, he'll you know? use what's there. Yeah, he'll he'll use what's there, and he will he will he will be brutal and 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 but you know he doesn't like. In terms of the kills themselves, you know he doesn't he doesn't stop to he doesn't really embellish it during the kill. Now he'll do so afterwards. Like remember the scene in the original where after he killed uh, Laurie's friend, he kind of laid her out on the bed with the the Judith Myers headstone uh, next to her. But as far as the kills themselves, yeah, he's always he's he's very utilitarian. Um, he doesn't really kind of drag things drag things out or or kind of taunt you like which I felt like he was kind of doing with the teeth. Yeah, that that felt kind of just a bit unnecessary. Um, I tell you what, I did enjoy the 2018 film overall more than I thought I would. As I said, I'm not a big slasher film, so I'm kind of like expecting. I was actually kind of expecting like a super uber gory uh, kind of splat fest in this in this film because that's kind of where slasher films have gone over the last several years. But I was actually uh, really impressed at how you know the teeth thing aside, restrained things were. 
you know, there, like there was some uh, some gore that you know you'd kind of expect, like you know the guy bleeding out in the mechanic shop or seeing the knife go through, uh, you know, someone else the, uh, through the woman's neck, um, you know, but nothing that was really kind of outside of the teeth thing. There's nothing that I really felt was really tasteless or or gratuitous. There's one um, thing that I did notice, and I'm kind of surprised they didn't do it because it want because they obviously want to set Michael up as this killer. One of the first people he kills in the movie when he gets back to um, Haddonfield is he kills this woman who has a baby and you hear the baby crying and he walks through the living room, stops by the cradle, hears the baby cry, and then just keeps moving. And Michael Myers, and I didn't notice this until I rewatched this movie today. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when the dad and the kid come across the crashed bus... Does Michael Myers not kill that kid? No, he he kills the kid. Yeah, that's what uh, I thought. That's unnecessary. But, well, uh, I mean, I mean, from an audience perspective, we could argue all day whether or not that's necessary or unnecessary. But I I say that that still fits with Michael's utilitarian character. Um, you know, he the, the, the you know the kid was was in the truck. He needed the truck, so he kind of you know killed the kid who was in his way. Um, whereas you know. Michael will go after his targets, but he doesn't really tend to, uh, he, you know, he, he, how can I put this? He'll use what's around him, him, but he's also not really going to go after anything that's after anyone who's not really outside of the person that he's chosen to target. He's not going to kill someone just because they happen to, if they're not in his way. So it's like, there was no real reason for him to kill the baby compared with a kid who, who, who was, not only in the truck, but was in the driver's seat of the truck, and Arc. Michael Myers needed that truck. Yeah, so it's it's again. I feel, I feel like in that case, that was again that was Michael Myers being more utilitarian. Whereas it, you know, if you wanted to be really gratuitous and senseless about it, yeah, have him kill the baby. But they didn't do that, and you know, that's like I said, I was amazed at how restrained the movie was in that sense. That again, yes, he's killing people and he's doing them in horrible, brutal ways, but it's still in keeping with his utilitarian murder, serial killer style that he had in the first film. I mean, it's one of the few examples I can think of where a horror movie has the balls to kill a kid, and the only movies I, I can think of are Halloween, both of them. The Blob remake from 1988. And I'm trying to think if there's another. Oh, Return of the Living Dead Part 2. They kill a kid. And there's probably other examples. But you never see it very often. You do see it more often in um, uh, Italian horror movies where they'll kill a kid. And some of those are brutal. There's one in particular I can think of. It's in Demons 2. They have there's like there's like this evil vile fluid I don't know and it turns the kid into a demon baby and it's super graphic but America has always shied away from that and I'm very glad they did because some of that's just unnecessary although just this is just a very quick sidebar I did notice when Michael after he kills that woman and ignores the baby he's out on the street some of the kids have Halloween masks on from Halloween 3. There's uh, one kid has the uh, kind of skeleton mask on, and I never caught that until today. So there's a lot of clever callbacks to the franchise as a whole in the new series, which I thought was actually kind of neat. 
Yeah, and actually, my favorite moment of those was when um, when Laurie and, and Michael are having the fight in the upstairs of the house, and Michael winds up throwing Laurie out the window, um, and then he looks down from the balcony, and she's disappeared. Um, with the and that that scene is shot from the exact same angle and the exact same musical scene as Sting as the ending of the original Halloween film. Yes, very so, very nice homage. Yeah, so that was that was a really nice little touch. Um, one thing there, I thought. Oh, sorry. There's one thing I thought this is really cool, and maybe this is more of an um an American mindset because you guys have a different culture surrounding um weapons and survivalism I thought that was a really cool angle to take with Lori to make her a person who's decided to train themselves to be a weapon and to have that survival bunker in her house and there's a line and I thought this was awesome where the the daughter Allison is calling for her mother and she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And she's got the rifle and Michael standing at the top of the stairs. And she's like, I can't do it. And Michael's just about to take the first step. The music just cuts out. Gotcha. Bang. Shoots him. He falls down the stairs. She rushes past him. And a couple seconds later, somebody says a line. I think it's Lori. She's like, that's, that's not a cage for me. It's a trap for you. And then she sets this like James Bond type house explosion where there's gas heating up, but there's also like a piece of heated filament or some piece of metal that's going to heat up. So she tosses a flare down as the final fuck you. But even if that doesn't go off and he manages to put that out, there's still a house wired to blow. And I found that a remarkably cool thing. Uh, I thought that was a really cool angle to take. And I know there are some Americans who have these survival bunkers in their house. I've never seen one in Canada, though there is one guy who built a bunker out of buses near me. It's weird. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was kind of a cool angle to take to make Lori not a victim. But she took her life into her own hands at the end of like a magnum and a rifle. Yeah, and uh, speaking of that scene, there's a, there's a, there's a shot in that scene that I that I really love, and again, it's a callback to the first film. But it's after uh, it's after uh, Karen, the daughter, shoots Michael, um, and then the camera kind of zooms past, and you see Laurie's face appear in shadow. And she says, "Happy Halloween." Yes, um, that is that is a sh- that is a callback to like one of my favorite shots from the original film, where Laurie is uh, in in the hallway, and she's kind of leaning, she's kind of leaning against the wall, trying to catch her breath. And you see Michael just kind of suddenly appear uh, in in the in the doorway in the shadow. And the director actually said that 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 shot was composed to actually simulate your eyes adjusting to the darkness. It wasn't supposed to be Michael standing out into the light. It's supposed to be your. It's supposed to simulate your eyes adjusting to the darkness, and that implies that Michael was standing there the whole time, which I thought was a really brilliantly done shot. And I love that callback to it in the 2018 film. Um, one of the things that I kind of thought was super, really kind of superfluous to the 2018 film was really everything surrounding the granddaughter. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that the relationship between Lori and her daughter Karen uh, provided a lot of nice little meat to uh, her character and how you know the two of the, the two of them are estranged because of Lori's obsession with Michael Myers. 
Um, but I felt like the, 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 the granddaughter was just really kind of superfluous and didn't really add anything to the movie. Um, I'd say, yeah, she gets a lot more screen time in Halloween Kills. But yeah, I mean, this was kind of just, I'm here, I'm a setup character, I don't really have anything to do until so far into the movie. Yeah, I don't disagree with this. She was just, I'm there to fill a void and to say some lines. Yeah, I also thought the whole subplot with the doctor in uh, in the 2018 film was really kind of superfluous. Like, you know, you, you, we're here to see Michael Myers. We, we're, we're not here to, to watch someone try and play, you know, sidekick or wrangler to Michael Myers. And I thought that that whole sudden bit at the end where the doctor finally is like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not here to stop Michael. I'm here to observe him was a bit of an ass pull. Yeah, it just it seemed so out there and so hokey i mean now when that doctor character gets his head stomped in that's a wickedly cool looking kill brutal as shit i mean i'm talking that's almost cronenberg levels of gross um but yeah it's just like really like i just you're right it's just it's so unnecessary you could have used that time to do something else you could have had a stronger uh kind of narrative you could have set up some more scenes with laurie fighting Michael or her talking about her trauma, but I'm a crazy doctor. I must see him do what he does because evil, I guess. Yeah. So I, I really didn't care for the doctor subplot. Um, but you know, other than that, I was, like I said, I was, I was remarkably surprised by how much I actually enjoyed the 2018 Halloween film because it really, it, it, it felt like getting back to basics um because you know so much of the you know one of the one of the big problems with franchise films is you always have to go bigger you always have to go more you always have to go more extreme you always have to do introduce some new wrinkle to some new hook to bring to bring people in you know and like i said in, in the original continuities of the halloween films they always came up with some ass pull like oh laurie is actually michael myers sister or there's this cult of the thorn that's controlling michael and laurie is supposed to be a sacrifice or he's some supernatural thing uh you know and it, it was it was neat to see halloween 2018 really just just strip all that away get back to basics and show that you know you don't need all this extra shit to make michael myers scary but say so, yeah i mean this is one of the better ideas for a soft kind of reboot where you only really need to see the original and it works, I think, overall as a continuation. Now, moving forward in the Halloween Kills, without spoiling it, it does fall off the rails in some fairly significant ways. From a storyline perspective, I wonder how Halloween ends when that comes out. Next year is going to fare. But I will say this. Um, this one is a lot more restrained than Halloween Kills, which is particularly brutal in a couple of scenes um like unnecessarily cruel and coming close to that R rob zombie level of brutality only more technically competent um i don't know like i want to like this franchise more than than i currently do there's just the characters here are stronger than say friday the 13th because you never really get a continuing character outside of like um tommy in like halloween or in like friday the 13th four through six here you get laurie you get tommy doyle and you get other characters from the first movie make a comeback like there's 
uh, Sheriff Brackett, the Sheriff Hawkins, stuff like that. There are enough characters that come back, but I don't know. This, the Halloween reboot starts out really strong. The middle parts of Stumble, I think. How this ends, I think, will be how this franchise will be remembered. And then I kind of hope they put this to sleep for a while. Like, I don't want Tales of Halloween, for example. Let the franchise go to bed for 10 or 15 years and then come back at it if they really want to. But without Jamie Lee Curtis, because there's no way she'll be doing this when she's 90. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I've got some concerns for the future of the franchise. But like you, I did like the 2018 more than I thought I did. One thing I will say about it, the way Michael is lit, and this is like a film nerd thing, you very rarely clearly see his eyes. In fact, I'm pretty sure you don't. You see the side of, of his face a few times, how he look, how he's got a beard. He kind of look. He, for some reason, he reminds me of Kevin Nash. Um, for some reason, who's a professional um, wrestler. So I don't know if I'm alone in seeing that, but. There's just the way he looks. The mask is great. It's probably the one of the best looking masks in the entire series. Um, and it looks great, but the narrative falls apart in some ways. Though 2018 is the strongest of the individual kind of narratives, but Halloween 1978 set the bar on how slashers can be more than, hey, look at gore. All right, and uh, yeah, I think we just kind of, kind of, kind of uh, talked about everything that we that there is to talk about between these two films. So uh, yeah, what? Uh, so let's uh, let's uh, turn this over to our listeners. What do you guys think? Which is uh, which is the superior film, the original nineteen seventy eight Halloween, or the or the twenty eighteen reboot? Or maybe are you one of those people who like the the ones that came out in between? Maybe you're a big fan of H two O or or Halloween four. You know, we'd love to hear why you love zombies. those. Maybe you're one of the rare people who actually likes the Rob Zombie films. I don't know. You know, if you are, we want to hear from you because, like, you know, why? <laughs> See, I will go to bat for Rob Zombie for one part of his Halloween reboot, and it's going to be blasphemous to everything I've said so far. I like what they did with the young Michael Myers, except I hate Bill Forsyth. And I can tell you why. He actually was remarkably rude to me at a convention once. He told me to go fuck myself. Uh, which I thought was incredible for a celebrity to do that, but celebrities too. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do like what they did with young Michael and Michael Myers' mom and how you could see how the fucked up seeds of him were growing. But yeah, you're right. I would love to hear from other people. What's your favorite Halloween and why? Do you like Halloween 6 director's cut, the producer's cut, or the theatrical cut? There are many, and Paul Rudd never ages. I don't know why. <laughs> But yeah, but that's all the time we have for Nerd of the Third Power this week. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. We will see you guys next time. As always, I'm Dr. Gonzo. I'm the Birdman. All right, we'll see you next time. Happy Halloween. Taka, play us out.
Excited for a road trip? Start it off right with auto coverage from American Family Insurance. J.D. Power ranked us number one in customer satisfaction with the auto insurance shopping experience among mid-size insurers. Get a quote at AmFam.com. American Family Insurance. For J.D. Power 2021 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Right here in Greater Atlanta. Here's a little tale about hard-to-recycle plastics. Their destinies were changed. Their new lives are fantastic. What once was trash can live on as new things. With a program that complements your regular recycling. Because plastics can be so much more. Give this trash a second chance it was hoping Greater Atlanta's hard-to-recycle plastics can be so much more. Participate in the Hefty Energy Bag Program, happening in your neighborhood today. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. It's TED Talks Daily. I'm your host, Elise Hugh. With climate change already devastating so many lives today, atmospheric scientist Elisa Oko is working on ways to limit near-term damage to the planet, not just the damage that's projected far in the future. That's why her work is focused on cutting methane. In her talk at the Countdown Summit in 2021, she shares the tools we have in order to act fast on climate change by cutting methane emissions in half. You wouldn't put your teen athlete on the same field as the pros, so why would you take them to the same doctor? Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Orthopedics and Sports Medicine is Georgia's only nationally ranked program for teen athletes. Visit today at choa.org teens. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Hello Monday. As the year winds to a close, a new work-life normal is emerging. How we work, where and when we work, and what work we're willing to do have all changed. Here to help break it all down is LinkedIn's Jesse Hempel and her podcast, Hello Monday. Hello Monday is for listeners who are looking to grow their professional lives and take ownership over their careers. Through each episode, listeners will learn they have more agency than ever before when it comes to changing their circumstances. If you want more from your professional life, whether it's a career pivot, a promotion, or even a first job, Hello Monday is here to help show you how. Listen and subscribe to Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite pods. In the time it took me to walk on stage, around 10 seconds, more than 10,000 metric tons of climate warming gases have been pumped into the atmosphere from human actions. To provide some context on just how much that is, that is the weight equivalent of 170,000 of me emitted in gas in 10 seconds. 99% of this pollution is carbon dioxide, CO2, and we know we need to reduce it. The other 1% is almost entirely methane, 
which mostly comes from producing fossil fuels, managing waste, and raising livestock. But that 1% of methane could cause more warming over the next 10 years than all that CO2. This is because methane absorbs a lot more energy per unit mass for reasons relating to its molecular structure and its ability to form other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. CO2 is important because it can linger in the atmosphere long after it is emitted, which means we must achieve net zero emissions to eventually stabilize our climate. This is key for protecting generations to come. But with climate change already devastating so many lives today, we can't focus only on the distant future. My work as a scientist aims to identify ways to slow down warming as fast as possible so that we can lower the risks of worsening damages in the near future. This is where methane comes in. That 1% of methane may cause more warming than all that CO2 in the next several years, but it only lasts in the atmosphere for around a decade. Methane's warming power is therefore not from the gradual buildup over time like CO2, but almost entirely from recent emissions. This means that every time we reduce methane, we can reduce a lot of warming right away. In fact, cutting methane is the single fastest, most effective opportunity to immediately slow down the rate of warming. This <laughs> And this is because not only does methane act fast, but because we can act fast, because we have the technologies available right now to cut methane emissions from human activities in half. And even better, many of these solutions pay for themselves. The methane we emit comes from three main sources, energy production, waste management, and agriculture. The first category, energy production, is the largest and cheapest opportunity we have to cut methane today. Most methane from energy isn't from burning fossil fuels, it's from producing fossil fuels. Because natural gas, which is mostly methane, can easily escape into the atmosphere when extracting oil, gas, and coal, or when transporting gas through pipelines. In fact, these leaks can completely offset any near-term climate benefits of using gas instead of coal. But we have the technologies to cut the majority of these emissions, with around half for no net cost, because the saved gas can be sold. For example, oil fields in West Texas are wasting enough gas right now to heat more than two million homes. Fixing the methane problem, though, can be as simple as tightening a valve or placing a gasket or tuning an engine. A major reason why these easy fixes haven't been implemented isn't the cost. It's because governments and industry have been data-deprived, lacking information on where and how much is emitted. But our ability to detect these leaks has rapidly advanced in recent years. Everything from handheld instruments to sensors on aircrafts and drones. And now there's a growing universe of satellites designed to locate and measure methane from space. That list includes MethaneSat, which is expected to be launch ready next year and will be able to detect and quantify methane emissions across the globe with unprecedented precision. If we can find it, we can fix it. This part is not rocket science. It's more like plumbing. 
I can't tell you enough how hopeful that makes me for the future. We can also reduce a lot of emissions from the second category, waste management, where methane is produced as bacteria decompose garbage in landfills and sludge in wastewater. Some of the largest landfills receive enough trash per day to fill more than 10 Olympic-sized swimming pools before it is compacted. But we can suck up the methane from landfills by using tubes with vacuums, and then use it to generate electricity because methane is an energy-packed fuel. We can also reduce emissions by sending some trash, like food waste, away from landfills and instead to composting centers. That are designed to prevent the release of methane. The third category, agriculture, emits the most and remains the hardest to address. But there are exciting new technologies on the horizon. The number one source is livestock. Some farm animals, like the billion-plus cattle worldwide, belch methane that was produced when digesting plants like grass. Reducing these emissions is possible with higher-quality feed, and scientists are developing and testing new technologies like feed supplements that can suppress methane production in a cow's gut by at least 30% with no negative effects on productivity or quality. Livestock manure can also produce methane when concentrated. But we can cover manure lagoons and then pump manure into digesters that can capture the methane, which can then be used for heat and electricity. Another methane source is rice production. This one crop is a staple for half the world's population, but the plants grow in flooded fields that create ideal conditions for microbes to form methane. We can slash emissions from methane by improving how we manage the required water, which can be as simple as maintaining a shallow level of water in the rice fields. Implementing all of these solutions will take work, but people have already started to act. Many governments, oil and gas CEOs, landfill operators, and farmers are advancing measures to reduce methane, but we need more. Because there is a lot of warming that we can prevent if we quickly deploy the full set of affordable and available strategies, we need standalone methane targets as part of every company's business model and every country's nationally determined contribution as the Paris Agreement is strengthened. Because if we succeed in a rapid, full-scale effort to cut methane, we have a chance to actually experience the benefits fast. In our lifetimes, for example, my colleagues and I found that we could slow down the rate of warming by as much as 30 percent before mid-century. This would help communities and ecosystems adapt to a changing climate and hit the brakes on worsening extreme events like wildfires in the Americas and Australia and flooding in Europe and Asia. It would also help clean up our air, saving lives and crops. Because methane contributes to ozone pollution, and because some of the people most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change are on the front lines of methane emissions, these solutions can also help reduce the inequity of climate change. For example, by job creation. If we fast forward to later decades, acting now to cut methane can also help protect Arctic sea ice. 
This is because when methane reductions are combined with strong actions to cut CO2, it becomes unlikely that temperatures would rise to levels that would trigger a total loss in Arctic summer sea ice. This is important not just for polar communities and ecosystems, but actually for the entire world. I've now been talking for almost 10 minutes, which means that more than 700,000 metric tons of climate warming gases have been pumped into the atmosphere. Now that equals the weight of 12 million of me. <laughs> of all this pollution, it is the methane that could warm the Earth the most over the next 10 years. But we know how to cut these emissions in half right now from energy, waste, and agriculture. This is the methane moment, because cutting methane is the single fastest, most effective opportunity to reduce climate change risks in the near term. And cutting CO2, which will otherwise build up over time, is the key to reducing risks in the long term. We need to do both to plot a safer course for ourselves and our children and for generations to come. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Excited for a road trip? Start it off right with auto coverage from American Family Insurance. J.D. Power ranked us number one in customer satisfaction with the auto insurance shopping experience among mid-size insurers. Get a quote at AmFam.com. American Family Insurance. For J.D. Power 2021 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I love your vacation home. How much time do you spend here? As much as we want. And when we're not using it, we rent it out. Our amazing team cares for and markets it on all the major booking sites. What team does all that? Picasa. They manage everything, and I see it all on my phone. Plus, they've been earning us over 20% more after I switched from my last property manager. Your vacation home earned you that much? It's not a vacation home. It's a Vacasa home. Get your free vacation income estimate to see how much your vacation home can earn you. Call 800-544-0300 or visit vacasa.com. This interview is brought to you by OKCoin Crypto Exchange, where you can buy, sell, and trade your favorite cryptocurrencies, and you don't have to pay high fees. OKCoin charges low fees, the lowest in the industry. You can also stake your crypto and keep 100% of the rewards. OKCoin does not charge any fees when it comes to staking. In fact, it is the only exchange where you can buy, sell, and trade Miami Coin and also stake Miami Coin at a high APY, currently at 280%. OKCoin also has a great referral program that if you refer a friend, you guys can split $100 in Bitcoin, 
So be sure to sign up with OKCoin, link in the description. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Thinking Crypto channel, your home for crypto news and interviews. With me today are two special guests, award-winning actress and soon-to-be filmmaker Jennifer Esposito, as well as Mark Elenowitz, who is the president of Horizon Fintechs and Upstream. Jennifer and Mark, great to have you both. Thank you for having us. Very exciting. I am excited to speak with you both. Jennifer, I've been a fan, seen you in various movies and TV shows. So it's certainly an honor to be chatting with you. And I wanted to start with uh, you know, your background, if you can tell us a bit about how you got into uh, being, being an actress, getting into acting. Um, well, since I could remember, um, I wanted to be an actor. I, I was a kid, you know, placed in front of a TV, you know, watching things like West Side Story. Um, and I just remember thinking, oh, okay, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Like, it was never even a question. There was nothing else. There was, there was no alternative. You know, when I started to get older, even, and my dad would say, what is your fallback? Like what? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't need a fallback. <laughs> so it was that blind kind of ambition and desire I just knew that I wanted to, I don't even even know if it was acting. It was just, I wanted to create the magic that I felt when I watched something like West Side Story. You know, it took me completely out of my world. And it was just this emotional connection with these people that I didn't know. And it was just, it was, uh, it was magic to me. So, yeah, that's. It started earliest memory. Uh, what was your favorite movie or film that you worked on, uh, you know, personally, and, and, you know, maybe where, you know, from uh, the viewer standpoint, it's always like, hey, this is my favorite film of Jennifer. But, you know, from your perspective, actually doing the work, you know, what was your favorite? Actually doing the work, I'd say one of my favorites, of course, was Summer of Sam with Spike Lee. That was the first time I I was I was really young and I had, I had just gotten out of acting school and I was you know doing student student um, films and 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 small plays and you know bit parts here and there but it was not until that role that I was I was able to really do something that I I knew I could and um, it was uh, I just I loved it and then you know. Uh, Crash was another one. Another thing I, I I loved the material. Like I just loved the material. I thought it was so human and 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 so um, so bold for the time. And um, so I loved it. What was your favorite? I would say Summer of Sam. Um, that's yeah. what I immediately thought of when I heard that uh, you know you're doing this project. Like, oh yeah, Jennifer from uh, Summer of Sam, and and that's one of my favorite movies too. Even though. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a bit uh, dark, but it's still really good, great story that was told. Oh, great! Yeah, it was, and it was amazing cast. You know, it was just a uh, and Spike, of course. It was it was just an awesome experience. So, tell us about some recent, uh, you know, films or TV shows you've been involved with, um, and you know, obviously, we're going to talk about your directorial uh, debut. But uh, what are some of the projects you're working on on the side as well? 
Um, so I, I do a show with Aquafina called Aquafina's Nora from Queens, which is just so much fun. Um, the second season I think is on now. Um, and it's, I mean, she's just fantastic and, uh, another great group of people. And I get to be really ridiculous, which makes me extremely happy. Um, and then I just worked on, uh, a first time directorial, uh, a project for Ray Romano. Um, he wrote and uh, directed his first project. And I just recently did that. But it's my life has been consumed with my film, Fresh Kills, for years. Um, but it's especially in the last, I'd say, three, it's been it's been, you know, it literally, I feel like I'm in one long day at this point. Like, I just feel like I'm in one long, like, I didn't even realize it was, it was uh, Halloween yesterday. I mean, that's horrible. <laughs> Someone's like, happy Halloween. I was like, oh, I like, I, I just feel like I've been in one long fresh kills day. Well, that's awesome. I mean, you can feel the passion that you have for the, for the uh, film and it's your baby and you're, you're trying to get that up and, and going. So I, my next question is going to be, you know, what made you decide to transition to being a filmmaker? Oh my goodness. This is so many answers to that, but I will say when I uh, got out of high school, I really wanted to go to NYU film school. I wanted to, I knew I wanted to tell stories Um and of course, not knowing anything about the business back then, and I couldn't afford to go to film school, I waited tables and put myself through acting school. And I thought that that would be the same kind of fulfillment for telling stories and connecting with people. But sadly, to my surprise, many years later, you realize that as an actor, you're paid to say someone's words, basically. Mm. And um, there's not much creativity that always goes into that. I mean, yes, of course, on some projects, but on most, here are your lines, say them, <laughs> look cute if you're a girl. And uh, I'm just not good in that kind of realm where I'm kind of just like, go do this, like, I really I, I need to be creative. So I found myself extremely frustrated uh, a lot and uh, not 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 like the creativity bug was not satiated, not even mm -hmm. kind of. And like things like Summer Sam and Crash and the affair and like there are definitely projects that I did that was like, okay, I loved this material, but there there are also projects that, you know, I, it was, it was a job and, and, and we all have to do it. And that's absolutely great. And I was able to do that, but then I got to a point in my life and I was like, it's, 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 it's taking away from me now. It's like hurting my soul. Like I, I, you know, when you're doing something and you feel like you're in the wrong space, I felt like that for many years and, and it's just not a, not a comfortable place to be. And and then I started to, and the business is, you know, that's a whole other show, um, you know, especially with females and ethnicity. And, you know, I was told I was too ethnic. I was, I was too this, I was too, you know, you get told everything and it, it blocks you from getting to certain work. 
and you know you're not box office and only box office people can get to the, that it, and it it's 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 it shouldn't be that way and you know the amount of insanity that i was around all the time and i would complain about it and i i just i'm not a, i'm not a person who who appreciates anyone who complains and doesn't do anything about it so i had to look at myself and say well what are you doing what are you doing to change anything, Jennifer, except like a tweet or like go out to a, you know, a rally for women's rights or whatever. And I thought, what are you doing to further how you feel and show real stories about real women and try and open up this block between ethnicities and seeing all voices on screen? And I thought, I have had the story for Fresh Kills since I was... 17 years old wow so that's like three years ago no it's longer but i have had this story with me for a very long time and through my career i had pitched it and people were like yeah great go write it and at the time i was like no one's gonna help me and it's like honestly if you keep waiting for someone to either give you a great job or help you you're going to be waiting a very long time. So I finally got to the point where I was so sick and tired of the situation, but I was also sick and tired of hearing myself complain. And I thought, you know what you have to do. Just do it. Sit down and do it. And I sat down many times. And of course, you know, through dealing with your own demons and dealing with the, you know, the industry puts you in a box just the way life puts you in a box and you have to really look at yourself to get out of it. Cause it's, it's could be scary. You doubt yourself, all of it. And I finally got to a point after starting and stopping and starting and stopping with the script that I said, there's no alternative, Jennifer, you're going to do this or you're going to go back and wait tables. Like, I, cause I'm not allowing you to take something else that you don't like not doing it. I'm not going to do it to those people. I'm not going to do it to me because there's no point. Give it, give the job to someone who is so excited about it. That wasn't me. And I thought it was, it was just unfair all the way around. And I felt like I had more to say. And I thought you're going to do it or you're not. And I sat down and like I said, for the last, I'd say three and a half, four years has been fresh kills morning, noon, and night. And I just, I just kept going. I love, I love your perseverance. And, you know, there's a lot of obstacles that you mentioned that uh, within the Hollywood realms uh, that we've heard a lot about in the, in the news and you've experienced that firsthand. And I think it's almost serendipitous where the technology, and we're going to talk about blockchain and the platform and how this movie is also movement I think it's serendipitous that, you know, your pain point and your perseverance and now the technology is meeting for a disruptive uh, movement. Um, 100%, 100%. And therein lies that thing people say is like, it's all in the timing. Because mm. if you would have told me this 10 years ago when I was really wanting to make this, I would have been like, why, you know? Um, but it really is all in the timing here with, with what we can actually get to now and get to the people with funding films in a different way, because there's so much there that we can talk about too, about how films 
and the kind of formula that it takes to get a green light on a film, I'm sure many people don't know, but it's when I started to go and get behind the camera and, and wanting to press and push my own film forward, I learned, I thought I knew and saw the business for what it was. And then I really was like kind of woken up because mm -hmm. I realized, well, I didn't realize I was told very clearly. It was actually by a, a, um, a big executive, big executive at a streaming service when I pitched my movie and they were like, I love this. I absolutely love this. Um, but you know, it's going to be really hard for you to get this made because you're a first time female writer director and there's no real big male lead. And I just thought, why? And she basically said, because the male is what gets the money for the movie. And it's like, wait a minute, what? And then I started to do some research and in our union, they actually have something called a diversity incentive that if you put 50% diversity in your, in your movie, you will get financial return. So you don't have to pay so much into the union. Mm -hmm. And when I looked closer, the first diversity listed is women. And I thought, how is that? How is that possible? How is that possible that we're considered diverse? So put 50% women and we'll give you some money. That's, that blew my mind. It really blew my mind. And I thought, I have to keep going because this, this, no wonder why we're seeing the same five people. No wonder right. why, you know, and, and then ethnicity and the, and then ageism is in there. It's like, if you put people over 55 or 60 and it's like, what world are we living in? We don't live in that singular world of seeing one person, one age, one, we don't. Right. So to me, the, all the problems that we have in our world with racism and all this ageism and females feeling horrible about themselves because we see these idealized versions of ourselves, it's not reality. And it causes an enormous issue. And I thought, wow, this is so much bigger than my movie. This mm. is so much bigger than my movie. Um, so it really put a whole different fire under my butt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love it. I, I want to talk about uh, the genesis of the idea for the movie of Fresh Girls. And if you can tell us about the story as much as you can. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you mentioned at 17, you kind of had the idea. And was it something you saw in life or, you know, what a situation? Yeah, yeah I moved from Brooklyn to Staten Island. And um, it was, you know, I was very young, but, you know, I think when you come from somewhere else and come into a different environment, you really look at it even more as an outsider. So I've always been very much, um, I, I think a lot, my brain never stops. And I remember coming into this new environment as I started to grow up, um, the girls around me were, uh, I grew up in a very rough, area and um, realizing some of the families I grew up around were mafia mm -hmm. and and the fights and the, the violence and the anger I saw now looking back was really unbelievable. 
I got used to it because that's what I knew. But it stayed with me. Like, why? Why? And I mean, brutal. And I thought, why is it? Why is this? Why is this? Why is it? Why are they so angry? And it stayed with me. And I left there at like 18 and went off and started to go into the business and work and everything. And that anger that I remember seeing, I started to really recognize in myself. And I thought, that's strange. My family is not involved in, 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 in that world, but why am I like, why do I feel that way? And, and it occurred to me, it was a position of where you were put in life without choice. I was put into this life as a female. That wasn't my choice. Mm-hmm. I didn't choose to be considered less than male. I, I didn't, that wasn't my choice just like the girls I grew up with, it wasn't their choice to be, to be born into families such as this, where their road is basically mapped out for them. And I thought it really stayed with me. And I thought this is, so it's basically Fresh Kills is a look at the mafia world from the female's point of view, which we have never seen. Yeah. I mean, that blows my mind in and of itself. It's like, I read a, an article with Scorsese and he was talking about the Irishman and someone was like, you know, that, that, that piece with Anna Paquin, like, why didn't we see more of like that relationship? And he literally said, I didn't think of it. And I thought, whoa, he's the master of this world. Like you didn't think of it because I grew up around some of this and, and these women have voices and they have things to say. And, and I thought, wow, that's pretty incredible because that's how I felt a lot of my life. And it doesn't matter mafia, not mafia. I think everybody is born into a slot or they are put into a slot where they feel that they're bumping their heads against the wall and they can't get out of. And it's the journey of seeing if you're brave enough to buck against what you're up against and change, not only change it for yourself, but change it for the generation coming behind you. So it's a very powerful story. Um, it takes uh, the, it, it, we follow these two sisters in this family and what happens if you want something different in that family? Um, and the journey, you know, to, to see what happens and, and if you can actually get out of, of, of something like that. And it's powerful because everyone can relate. Everyone has been put into some kind of box or, or born into a cycle that you have to break. And, and that's what it's about. It's a, I, I, and that's the other thing. When I went out with the script, I got rave reviews, like on blacklisted, rated really high. I, I had people offering me like $6 million to make the film if, if I got the lead guy to, to be a, a name actor. And it was like, but he's, own, he's not the lead. Right. He's not the lead. It's about the women. And it's like, and then we would have had to pay that male actor 90 times more than we'd be paying those young women. And I thought, I can't do this. It goes against everything that I'm at rallies for. Like, I cannot do this. So that's why we, we wanted to go this road. Cause like you said, it's so much more than a movie now. I love the premise, uh, the fact that like you said, the story has never been told from a female perspective. You know, you always see 
just the male characters, whether it be Goodfellas or whatever it may be. Right. Yeah, this, this female character is always secondary, but uh, it would be very, very interesting to get that perspective. And exactly. to your point, those the female characters are individuals who have their own ambitions and thoughts and right. dreams and their story. So I, I love it. I, I love that point of view that you're going to present to uh thank to you thank you and and like i said you know it's not a female story at all it's like we're still in the mafia world you're just seeing it from the different perspective there's the violence is as all of it it's just done by the women and i'm sure it's going to make people extremely uncomfortable at times because these young girls are brutal they're brutal mm-hmm. and they're going to show you exactly how you know it feels to be sur- trapped in that lifestyle so I, I thought it was something that was important to be told. So, you know, you've been working on on this uh, movie, like you said, for the past three years, but the story, you know, reson- uh, originated since you were 17 years old. Um, how did the merging of doing, let's say, a movement and a crowdfunding via the, the blockchain technology and the different uh, technology we have now, maybe Mark, This is where you can jump in and and fill in some of the gaps. How how did the two converge? Well, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in the, uh, the concept was something that we had been developing for a number of years. And I had met Jen, heard the passion of what she was trying to create. And it was like a perfect marriage because Mm -hmm. we, what we were building and what we were trying to create was a marketplace to allow basically ordinary or, or regular people get the same opportunity for the Wall Street elite or the Hollywood premier you know, funders. Everybody, it's, it's kind of the rich get richer we always see. And this was an opportunity to democratize films and allow fan engagement to be a part of the movement. Uh, and much more, what really inspired us to get involved with Jen was it was much more than just the movement of having equity or owning a piece of film, but what she was trying to articulate with women and diversity and the whole concept and everything she just told you about, it really hit home for us because now with the blockchain and with the ability to allow investors in a legal, safe, secure manner to participate, it it was just a perfect storm. And Jen, I don't know if that's how you felt too. Yeah, no, I mean, I have to be honest, like I started to get as you could tell, I'm not someone who takes no for an answer or stops. Like you tell me, no, I'm like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get there. So I was, but I was getting very, very heartbroken about the industry loving the material, but having all these rules to get money. And I thought this is insane. And I thought, and like I said, the things that I started to learn about the diversity club, like I've been in this business for 30 years and I did not know that women were considered diverse. Like that blew my mind. I mean, think about that. That's crazy. And I I thought I'm going to do a crowdfunding. I'm going to, I need to tell the world I'm going to do a crowdfunding because we cannot keep going to we can't keep going to rallies and begging people to stop with the racism and the sexism and the misogyny. We cannot keep doing that if we're not going to take steps to, to get the foundation better. And the foundation is what's coming in your homes, meaning the content that's coming in our homes is telling us how we behave in our culture. 
who we look up to, who we don't look, who's a villain, who's, you, you can see it. You watch the, the, especially like, if you look at something 10 years ago, you're, you're blown away at the stereotypes that yeah. are all there. So if we want to change our world, have to change our content and by doing and doing that, listen, it's such a structure, the Hollywood system. There's there's no way we're getting in there and going like change. It's not happening overnight. When I met Mark, I was thinking crowdfunding. And then I met Mark and it was like, oh, wait a minute. This blows my mind because I've been thinking about this and here is a way to get to the people to say, what do you wanna see? What do you want to put your money behind? And not only put your money and get a hat from crowdfunding, but you'll make money. Right. Selling NFTs. You can then trade it. And I'm a huge crypto head. I love crypto. I love the whole thing. Like I could talk to you for hours about it. I'm so excited about it because it's, again, it's what Mark said. It's the powers that be and then everyone else. And I am so sick of it. I'm so sick of it. And crypto, it, it, it allows people to, to deal with their own money and have wealth where they wouldn't have had wealth. And that to me is is so life-changing, but doing something like this also is life-changing. And so the blockchain allowing us to do something like this, it's so revolutionary. And I get, I told Mark, once we go and we get out there talking about this, you're going to have so many calls. And sure enough, Hollywood's yeah. calling. <laughs> Probably getting two calls a day. Uh, there you go. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's revolutionary. For sure. I mean, you're certainly ahead of the curve here. We're seeing, um, you know, to your point, just the disruption that's happening on multiple fronts. I think the internet started, you know, started it all. It's the ultimate level playing field. You layer blockchain and the ability to have verifiable transactions with mm -hmm. finances. I think that's a game changer. And a lot of industries are going to be disrupted. Like you said, a lot of the, maybe the incumbents and, and the, the old ways, the old guard, that is standing there, they're about to get disrupted. So I love it. So let's talk about the, the logistics, the ex execution of this. Who can participate? Um, Mark, maybe you can tell us about Horizon Fintechs and Upstream and the Ethereum blockchain, how that's powering the whole movement. Yeah, let me, uh, so to give you a little background on, on, on Horizon Fintechs and, and Upstream. So we've been at this for about three years. Uh, what's unique about our firm is that we're a marriage of Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So where a lot of the, the sites that are out there and, and the thought leaders and, and the people that are really trying to inspire the movement with blockchain, unfortunately, they don't come from a securities background. So while they have some great ideas, it's not really jiving with the way Wall Street or, or US securities laws work. And we're seeing that now with the SEC starting to take notice with a lot of these types of offerings and uh, some of the ICO booms and the other things that are going around the world. Uh, uh, one thing to point out, what we're talking about with Jen um, is actually enabling investors from around the world to participate in the ability to be able to buy into a film and then be able to trade those securities. Unfortunately, under the US laws, it's not available here yet. And I have to say that because uh, she is also doing what's known as a 506C which does allow U.S. citizens and investors to participate, but 
unlike an international market, they actually have to hold their shares for a year and it's for accredited investors. But what we were able to do, and this was with the, the beauty and the creativity of combining Wall Street and Silicon Valley, is we were able to create NFTs where it allows anyone around the world to participate and to be able to come in and actually be a part of the movement and own a piece of uh, that particular opportunity in terms of movement. You don't own equity, but you get really great fan perks. Like you can be in the movie, you can walk the red carpet, you can meet and greet, wow. you can get ex executive uh, production credits, a lot of really fun things, or you can just participate. But what you'll see, and, and, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about it, is that Jen had brought together an award-winning artist uh, who designed some really, truly amazing NFTs that are much more than just a key or utility to be a part of the movement. But these are things you actually want to own and you want to, you want to be proud and, and display them in the metaverse and show people. And the thought process is in time, these will probably become collectible items. So hopefully they'll be of additional value beyond just that perk that comes with it. Because when Mark said NFTs, I started, of course, started doing research because, like I said, I love this whole world and I'm, I'm still learning, but I love it. And I started realizing out of things I was reading that female NFT artists were less prominent than males. And I thought, can't have that. <laughs> I got to figure <laughs> out where I can find. And I researched and researched and found this wonderful artist, female artist from Spain. Her name is Gala. And I mean, you have to see her artwork. It is, it is absolutely stunning. And so the fact that, like Mark said, when he told me, you know, only accredited in this country, of course, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that really made me so upset because you can't go to the people, but it's only certain people. And that's sadly our government. However, we made it possible that for $25, anybody can be a part of this, anybody. And like I said, we're doing things where for $25, if you buy in, your name is going to go into a raffle that you can have a line in the film. Like That's awesome. That's huge. And anybody can buy an NFT. And, you know, so we made it usable for everyone. Of course, everyone who's overseas has the ability to buy shares. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's so revolutionary. It makes me so excited. It's just now educating people about it. You know, it's really making them understand what this is and how enormous this is and how this is so much more than a film. And so you know that we really stand by what we're saying. 5% um, of, 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 of uh, the profit of what we make will go back into the next uh, uh, female-driven film. So that's another thing that we're doing. I mean, but Jen, we have... Oh, go ahead, Sorry, Mark. I was just gonna say, you know, to echo what Jen's saying, we actually took it a step further though. And I think this is something I wanted to touch upon what makes Upstream so different than all these other marketplaces is that what we were focusing on was truly investor protection. So mm -hmm. Upstream is a national securities exchange. This is not a crypto market. This is not one of these pop-up markets. This is not OpenSea. It's a regulated stock exchange that's part it's an affiliate of what's called the World Federation of Exchanges. There's 250 global exchanges around the world. 
like the New York, NASDAQ, Tokyo, Hong Kong, London. And then upstream, which is part of merge, is an affiliate. So this, that statement is really important because investors can come into our marketplace and be able to transact in a safe, secure environment. And because it's built on the, the framework of a stock exchange, if the token or the uh, NFT or the security was to be lost, unlike these other Bitcoin wallets that disappear, we can replace it. And your cash, your fiat is insured in an FDIC bank account for $250,000. Now, we as Americans, we take this for granted every day. Yeah. But somebody offshore in another country, this is something they're not used to. So those type of investor protections and disclosure is key. But, but the reality is this is all under the hood. Investors, this our app looks just like Robinhood or E-Trade. And you can go through a light touch KYC. And know, though, that you're transacting, as I said, in a, in a transparent manner. In fact, we actually publish the order book on Ethereum. So there's no layering or spoofing or market manipulation. It's all crystal clear. And the best part is you don't need to be a crypto expert because Jen's movement is to the global community. Not everybody knows how to go and create a MetaMask and be able to go and get anything converted into this and transact here. They just want to be able to open an account and buy with dollars, or we also PayPal. allow investors to be able to come in and buy utilizing PayPal. So you can use debit and credit. We do also accept cryptocurrency. We accept it in the form of a USDC stable coin, but we do try to make it so that everybody can come in and just know what they're used to. Buy something, hold it, sell it, trade it. And we also allow you to move it to another market. If you want to take it and take your NFT and put it on OpenSea or any of these other markets, you're welcome to. That's great. I love the interoperability that you have set up with uh, the payments, the ability to move to other markets. That's that's pretty cool. Um, Jennifer, were, were you going to say something on that front? Uh, I, I mean, it's every time I hear... Like I said, I understand, but then I hear Mark talk about it and it gets me more excited <laughs> because it's like, oh my God, this is so huge. It's like, I want to scream it from the mountaintops. It's like, you know, every actor friend of mine, everybody who's ever had a complaint about the way things are done. It's like, guys, get on the train because this could change everything. You know, this could change everything. It's it's just really exciting to me that there is an alternative for artists. To, I mean, for me, and I, I'm in the business, it's taken three years to get to this point. Of, and, and my script was well-received. Can you imagine an artist who's, who's written a beautiful script and has no end to, you know, it's it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. For sure. And you know, I go come back to the word uh, serendipitous. I just, the, the timing, because we're just seeing uh, just a rapid growth in tokenization of different assets. And it's very beneficial to artists. So whether you're a musician or exactly, yeah, yeah, just traditional artists or someone like yourself as a filmmaker, uh, it's just amazing what's happening. And I, I think this trend will continue. We're just headed to the entirely digital tokenized world and uh, obviously recently we heard facebook and their move to go to the full metaverse as well so I, i'll say it again i think you guys are ahead of the curve here jennifer you're certainly ahead of the curve 
Um, and it's really exciting. Um, I, I did want to confirm a few things, Mark, with regards to the Ethereum blockchain. Um, does that power upstream? Are there plans to integrate other blockchains? Uh, or do you think that's the one that you're going to use since it's the most biggest yeah, I mean, contract platform? We're using right now the Ethereum blockchain. Um, we run it on, a, on Ethereum, a layer two uh, roll-up technology for Rainium. And we think this is really important because one of the things that we found with a lot of the other sites that are out there is that the gas fees are just getting astronomical. Yeah. So we don't have any gas fees associated with it. Our market was designed to be where, like I said earlier, it's really efficient, where we only charge 2%. Um, so it's, it's designed to be a, a market that investors can come or, or fans can come in and own a piece of these celebrity offerings. Um, but we have also built really amazing technology that we can convert any image into an NFT in 18 seconds. Wow. So it's not just for, for celebrities and entertainers and musicians and artists, but it's also for everyone. So if you have a beautiful picture, if you're, you're doing, uh, you have a shot of, let's say, a sunset in Mumbai, you know, for 10 or $20, you can auction that off as an NFT and somebody could utilize that somewhere across the globe. So we're really trying to make it available to everyone and where you can just upload a video or an image and then 18 seconds later, it's converted into an NFT. You don't have to be a crypto genius in order to convert and create these NFTs. And we've started to focus, we're working with a lot of celebrities and entertainers that are recognizing that you don't need to create NFTs that you're selling for millions of dollars. Make it for them fans, make it for the mass, allow everybody to have a chance to own a piece of your content or your tours or your images. We've also, as a securities exchange, we have the ability to sell equity ownership directly in music royalty rights yeah. and revenue streams and television shows. Anything that has the ability to create cash flow can be created into a security, which is a digital token, and then also into an NFT that can be sold to these fans around the world. So we're partnered right now with Gary Morella and Timbaland. Uh, also Pitbull is our, our spokesperson and part of our team and our strategic advisor rather. So we have the ability to really, as I said at the beginning, Wall Street meets Silicon Valley, combining it to the entertainment community, working with Jen and working with Armando Pitbull and working with Timbaland, it really gives us the insight to create structure and instruments that are important to the celebrity, but also available to everyone. Um, what is the uh, crowdfunding goal? And once you've hit that goal for the movie Fresh Kills, uh, what is the next steps as far as distribution and getting it uh, published, so to speak? So well, uh, uh, it's a it's a 3.5 raise right now um uh we have some investors that came in early so we we're 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 in a good space but of course there's still room for people to get in and i have a feeling it's going to go quick so i'd love for people to come join us because also so you know it's not once the once we raise it that's it like mark said we're going to utilize taking things from the set and making them into NFTs. So, wow. you know, yeah. And, and, and also what's good about this is like the cast hasn't been announced yet. 
once the cast gets announced and like all these other things start to happen, I'm sure things are going to get more exciting. But the 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 idea with an independent film usually is um, is you would take it, go to festivals and, you know, all of those things are going to help move those shares. You know, you get you get into Sundance or Venice or whatever. Um, you know, we already have interest from a big streamer, you know, from the very beginning. And, you know, it's so exciting. We're going to see where it'll wind up. But it's always been my uh, my idea and my uh, I, I'd much rather go into the festival system, because if you look at things like, you know, Crash, Crash was made, I think, at 10 million and it sold for a lot more than that. And you you look at these small films like if you go in, you go into Fresh Kills Film um, dot com the website you'll you'll you can see all of this background information we have comparable films that you can see you know some were made for 3.5 some were made for 2.5 and they made 80 million mm -hmm. you know so that's the beauty of doing something like this so um yeah we're we're, we're in a good position but Joe, let me let me take it a little further because yeah. you touched upon something. The this is an actual IPO, and maybe we weren't very clear about it. But for international investors, they're buying into an IPO. When the three point five million closes, that's it. But then the next day, those shares open up for trading, and investors that miss the opportunity can buy it. So yeah. as Jen was saying, if it goes onto the in, onto the film circuit or the uh, festival circuit and it starts getting buzzed, the value of those shares are gonna rise. Once the film gets sold and it continues to make money, the value of those shares will rise. So investors will have the ability to sell if they decide that's where they, they're ready to exit. And investors that miss the opportunity that see Jen win this major award that wanna come in and buy the shares, they can come in and buy it too. So it's continuous. And what we set it up as, and this is where we come back to kind of the Wall Street mentality, is the investors that participate in the film get 110% of their money back before anyone else associated with the film makes money. So the investors are insured the first PREF return. And after they receive 110% of their money back, those shares then convert into common stock where they own 25%. So if this is one of those amazing films that Jen had mentioned that was produced for three and a half million that sells to be something quite substantial, investors will continue to get dividends year after year. And again, being that we're a stock exchange, those dividends are paid out like just owning, like owning Apple or Microsoft. The money will show up into the investor's account. And the beauty of the blockchain is it's a T0 instantaneous settlement. So investors can push a button and in a matter of seconds, their stable coin will be returned to them. Or if they receive cash, they'll be show up in their account the next day. So it's truly a modernization of Wall Street. Yeah, that, that's a, just another layer that is pretty incredible. Um, when you think about it, um, I, 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 wow, there's so, so many possibilities with that. And I love it. I, I love it. And a lot of my viewers as well, and listeners, um, I will certainly be participating. Uh, in, in the <laughs> Thank you so much. That's really exciting. But you see, it's that, it's that feeling like I would have never met you. You would have never had the opportunity to take part in something like this. And now we're able to do this. Like to me, that's what I loved about this business. It was reaching people through art. And unfortunately, and I, I understand that when it's a business, you have to make money and all of that stuff. But I do believe they can marry. I do believe that it can, 
it can be a a a marriage of making art and also going to the people and 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 creating some kind of synergy between what we want to see and 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 getting things on the screen that matter to everyone. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love it. Um, and I'm sure many of my viewers, like I said, will, will be very interested in this. So I'll be sure to put all the respective links in the description. Uh, Jennifer, it's a pleasure to, to speak with you. I'll, I want to wrap it up with some quick rapid fire questions, uh, okay. such as what's your favorite food? Favorite food is bread and I can't eat it because <laughs> I'm celiac, but I bake it. <laughs> favorite musician or band? Oh my God. I, I would think anyone from like Jay-Z to like Radiohead. I'm like all over the place. This is probably an awkward question to ask your favorite movie. That's so hard, but I would go with, you know, West Side Story because when I was a kid, that was my thing. Uh, favorite book? You know what I'm, I'm reading right now? The, um, uh, by uh, Joe Dispenza, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. It's actually great. <laughs> it's awesome. And when, when you're not working on fresh kills, what are you doing for fun as a hobby? I don't know that answer anymore because this is <laughs> all I do. This is it. I, but I do bake. I love to bake. It's kind of like therapy for me. Awesome. Well, Jennifer and Mark, pleasure chatting with you both. I'm excited for this movie and uh, I will certainly be participating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Excited for a road trip? Start it off right with auto coverage from American Family Insurance. J.D. Power ranked us number one in customer satisfaction with the auto insurance shopping experience among mid-size insurers. Get a quote at AmFam.com. American Family Insurance. For J.D. Power 2021 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I love your vacation home. How much time do you spend here? As much as we want. And when we're not using it, we rent it out. Our amazing team cares for and markets it on all the major booking sites. What team does all that? Vacasa. They manage everything, and I see it all on my phone. Plus, they've been earning us over 20% more after I switched from my last property manager. Your vacation home earned you that much? It's not a vacation home. It's a Vacasa home. Get your free vacation income estimate to see how much you your vacation home can earn you. Call 800-544-0300 or visit vacasa.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes.
please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.